Welcome to another episode of the Community Board Podcast with your host Miguel Valdez. And today I have uh, the honor to be here with my friend, Dr. Brian Rivers from Morehouse School of Medicine from Atlanta, Georgia. And he has uh, a special relationship with the weather in Minnesota. Doctor, why don't you share with us what has been your experience with uh, with the weather in Minnesota? You're supposed to be here in February. That's correct. Didn't happen. Right. And now we're in July and almost didn't happen again. Almost. What happened in February 1st? Well, good day, my friend, and hello, audience. Um, so, you know, I've been on this <laughs> trick of trying to get up here to do a talk. I was invited early this year, um, attempted to come up in February, was snowed in, spent the night in the airport in Minneapolis, ended up having to go back to Atlanta. And so yesterday, upon leaving Chicago, headed to Minneapolis and then eventually Rochester, I was informed that there was some type of storm brewing. And where were you? In Chicago at this point? In Chicago. And so... Already in the plane? Well, at the gate. Okay. And so the flight was delayed from 7.41 to 8.21 and then to 9.05. And then finally, you know, we took off and we had to take the long way apparently to Minneapolis because the storm was so severe. By the time we arrived here in Minneapolis... There was no place for us at the gate. And so we waited on the plane for at least 30 minutes. And for the first time, I felt claustrophobic. Wow. And out of control. So how many, how, how many hours is at this point in the plane? Uh, so at least about five hours wow. on the plane. From a flight from Chicago. From Chicago. And Which? then by the time we deplaned, I then learned that I missed my connecting flight to Rochester by three minutes. Oh. We deplaned at 12.15 a.m., and they backed the jet out at 12.12 uh, 12 a.m. And where was your luggage? Did it get transferred? Or? No, so the yeah. luggage was um, in a bin, apparently, in the back, thinking I was going to take a later flight, today being Friday, at 5.56 p.m. That's what they rebooked me for. Okay. And so I said, no, I have to be at Mayo Clinic before noon because I'm doing a talk. Yeah. And so I waited, and I waited, and I waited. I waited one hour, two hours, three hours. By 7 a.m., I eventually got my suitcase. So between midnight and 7 a.m., I stayed up all night watching the luggage service for, wow. for my so bag. So what would it be um, a tip for somebody who had to spend the time in the airport? What do you learn in this window of time of? Make sure you have your laptop because I got a lot of work done good charger. this morning and a good charger. And make sure your cell phone charger is also with you as well. Um, and you'd be surprised, you know, how much work you can get done without a television in front of you. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but I am glad to be here and had a fabulous time today. Met some great faculty and staff and just really excited about the great work that you guys have going on here. No, thank you for the all the information that you shared today. And uh, we're fortunate that you're here today and also to share with everybody here um, in the podcast about the work that you've been doing. You've been working 
in a project that involves CBPR. Can you explain to the audience what is CBPR? Sure. So CBPR is the acronym for Community-Based Participatory Research. It is a methodology um, utilized to engage communities in the facilitation and conduct of research. So it includes principles such as building trust or um, establishing partnerships or maintaining those partnerships, um, the role of transparency, the role of clear communication. It really gives you sort of what we call the ethical um, framework for engaging community partners to address a salient condition in, in the community that's important to them and then coming up with viable solutions um, that the community is in agreement with toward addressing that issue. And can CBPR can be applied for all types of research or just medical field? Can it be applied for policy changing, for example? Sure, exactly. I think CBPR is cross-cutting in terms of its application. Again, the whole emphasis of the model is to, is how we engage one another and, and, and at least identifying parameters for this level of engagement. And so whether it's looking at policy reformation at the state or uh, national level or whether it's to engage in medical research or sociological research. Yeah, grassroots or, or organization, you know, voter um, demonstrations. You know, it's cross-cutting in terms of its application. Okay. And in your case, what do you apply to CBPR? So uh, I apply it in the context of working with communities to eliminate the um, disproportionate impact of cancer. Okay. And we commonly refer to this phenomenon as cancer health disparities. And so my thrust is through research, to utilize this methodology to work with in, uh, communities that are disproportionately impacted by cancer, whether it's prostate, whether it's breast cancer, whether it's lung cancer, a colon or rectal cancer, ovarian cancer, and then come up with solutions um, that are tangible enough for the community to engage in. And in your experience, what, has been, what are the biggest barriers that you guys found for those disparities? Sure. Um, and, and so I'm a behavioral scientist by training. So mm -hmm. a lot what does of, that mean? So behavioral scientists, we're, we're focused on um, understanding what role does behavior play in terms of my health outcomes. And so, you know, we look at how our behavior interacts with our biology or our mm -hmm. human body and then how our behavior acts within our environment. And so you have this, this interactive exchange, if you will, between behavior, biology, and environment that ultimately dictates your health outcomes. I'm interested in your behavior. I mean, mm -hmm. I, you know. The decision you, the individual the, takes. The decision-making, um, the activities that you engage in, whether it's physical activity, your dietary patterns, those other behaviors, alcohol consumption, tobacco usage, um, and then how you interact with the environment, how you manage your stress. How do we mitigate stress? We all walk around with a lot of stress. Mm -hmm. Over time, that stress could get the best of us and create portals of inflammation, that then may have a, delir um, a delirious effect of, um, on, on our body. Okay. Talking about a little bit of stress, just as awareness, uh, July being mental health awareness sure. for minorities and the stigma that, that we have, that sometimes we don't talk about in our communities about mental health. Sure. Yeah. How, have you, how does that take in, uh, how does that affect the body? Right. Well, well I mean, stress could ripen your body for cancer. Okay. I um, mean, you know, in terms Merf, of fertile for cancer. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Um, causing the uncontrollable re, um, reproduction, uh, replication of, um, you know, your cells. Um, but, you know, 
I think from a behavioral standpoint, we're more interested in how we cope with stress. What what okay. strategies um, are available in community-based settings that um, bode well for um, coping mechanisms? Um, I'm in the South. I've worked in the South pretty much all my career, mm-hmm. from Georgia to Tennessee to Alabama to Texas to Florida. Even spent some time in North Carolina, and you know, it's historically it was considered it's the Bible Belt. Mm-hmm. And so when you go and you start talking about mental health. A lot of people bring up spirituality as a coping mechanism. Well, I pray or I meditate or, you know, I go to my um, house of worship mm-hmm. or, you know, I utilize my faith to overcome this, this barrier, which is great, which is outstanding. That's understanding the community that you're interfacing with and the community that you're working with. That's your environment. That's your environment. And again, if that's your viable coping strategy, then we want to better understand the role that it plays in terms of your health outcomes. Okay. And what what was your findings in this research that you did in uh in in this case where did you where did you conduct your study? So a lot of my uh research again is um community based. Okay. Uh, whether it's in barbershops, whether it's in churches, whether it's in beauty salons, whether it's um, you know, looking at community models such as community health workers or um patient navigation models whether it's um, safety net hospitals. Where the community's at. It was wherever the community's at. Whatever research question we're asking across the um, cancer continuum, then that's who we're going um, to interface with those individuals. And you also mentioned uh, during your presentation about you did some uh, training some individuals for community health workers or navigators. What was their role? In this, well, in I really believe in that model. Um, and for those who aren't familiar, the community health worker model um, has been around um, for um, decades now, um, since the um, late 1960s. Um, and, and the emphasis of the model is to call out individuals from impacted communities or communities you're looking to interface with um, and, and train them and, and retool them and, and shape them as gatekeepers and then place them back into their community so that they can lead and be a leader and serve as a leader to their community, especially as it relates to health outcomes. Um, you know, whether that involves increasing awareness, whether that involves providing education or information along the lines of health, among other things. Um, this model, as you know, or your audience may um, be aware of, was utilized to sign people up for the Affordable Care Act. And, oh, also. Yes. Yeah, okay. And, and, and so you see the wide application of this model. Um, and, and it really benefits and bodes well, especially in the context of cancer, um, you know, because individuals are looking for trusted individuals because the messaging is often so complicated and they mm-hmm. hear so many um, stereotypes or misconceptions or erroneous beliefs about, you know, what are the drivers of cancer and how one gets cancer and, you know, how one is treated for cancer. And, you know, having a trusted individual who the community knows and respects um, really bodes well for helping them better understand cancer and understanding the role of um, prevention and, um, and, and, and awareness. And uh, you you talk also about the um, prostate cancer. Yes. The information that you guys were yes. uh, passing the knowledge, sharing information through the barbershops. Sure. Um, what was some of the experience that you got back from some of the barbers or the or the people who received that information. I remember also you shared the you got the the information back once you got the research. 
how those individuals who got the information from the barber, how do they share that with their own network, yeah. their own family and friends? Yeah. Well, so we really began to understand the role um, of, of, of social networks. Um, a lot of the men received this great information that was being disseminated, um, and, and they did not just leave it in the trunk of their car or you know leave it on the floor of their car, but they went home and shared it with their spouses, um, with their neighbors, uh, with their um, children. Um, and, and, you know, and again, to, to to us, it showed us how important that information was. Um, secondly, it showed us that um, when when individuals are presented with the right information, they act on it. So no one just does not want to be trusted un- source. Yeah, too. no one wants to just walk around and be unhealthy. But it's someone says, when you know better, you do better. And then you're willing to share that knowledge of how you do better. And that's what we saw. A lot of the men, you know, were very excited that we were in the community. They were very excited about the information that we were bringing. And, uh, and these weren't, you know, the low SES or, you know, individuals who we often think of, the medically underserved. They were part of that group. But then there was also highly educated um, individuals as well who still didn't have access to this information. We mm-hmm. do that with attorneys. We had a couple of politicians as well we gave the information to. And they told us, thank you. We didn't know that this was a screening age for prostate cancer or that I should be having this conversation beginning at this age. And so you just have to think, wow, this is just information. We did not provide a PSA or a DRE. You know, we, Where is that DRE? A digital rectal exam or okay. a PSA, the prostate-specific antigen, which gotcha. is a blood draw. Um, you know, both um, tools that um, are used for prostate cancer screening. Okay. And, and and so you know we we just began to wonder how can we create you know what is the portals. what is the age for prostate cancer recommended for for individuals to so, get so men at average risk then um, the recommendation is to start having the conversation around age fifty okay for men at increased risk meaning those that are of African ancestry or African American or black and then those who may have a family history okay. of um, prostate cancer should start around the age of forty five if you have double the risk then some recommend that you start at the age of 40, okay. meaning that you're African-American or black there is no and symptoms. a family history. There is no symptoms. No symptoms. Until no. you feel sick. Exactly. And that's probably sometimes right. late. I mean, you may have you know, some signs um, that something is going on, but it doesn't mean that it's cancer. You could have an enlarged prostate. You can have an infection in your prostate gland. But it doesn't mean that it's cancer. But no, there Can are that no trigger signs. cancer? Uh, Does it, it studies show that? No, no, no studies have concluded okay. that an enlarged prostate can turn into cancer or an affected prostate can turn into cancer. Okay. How, what would you recommend for um, somebody in the medical field, in the research field, or a community partner, uh, if somebody approached you and asked you, hey, would you like to be part of this community-based participatory research what has been your experience do you, going back in your career when you first started working on CBPR? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, how, how would you, what would you be the recommendation for somebody who is new to this approach? A researcher? Mm-hmm. Researcher or community partner. Or, or community uh, For example, those barbershops, the sure. individuals who got... Uh, I, I'm imagining the first time that you guys went and talked to them, like, hey, you want to be part of this? Well, you know, a lot of um, 
you know, these individuals that we interface with are already doing some element of health education. Okay. Um, you know, it's just the nature, I think, of who we are as human beings. We're always looking to better ourselves and better understand ourselves. They're and already connectors. They're, they're already connectors, but it's just a matter of what are they connecting individuals with and how can we give them credible information to continue to serve as connectors but now disseminate reliable and salient information to their constituents. And, and, and so, you know, of course, we read the literature, uh, whether it's the scientific literature or we hear it in the popular press, how minorities don't want to participate in research or they're fearful, they don't want to be treated like guinea pigs. And my experience has been that, you know, when you approach them, the um, uh, minority communities with respect, with integrity, with dignity and transparency, Oh, they're they're just as likely to participate as anyone else in the research. And I think we have to work on our processes of inviting individuals to participate in research and not look at them just as investing in that trust and building that trust. And it takes time. Uh, it's not an easy process. You know, trust is a process. Even once they agree to participate, you're still continuously building that trust along the way. The earlier you invite them, the better. The earlier you invite them, the better, the more transparent you are, the sharing of all power, intellectual power, fiscal power. All of that matters, and all of that continues to be pillars of a relationship, just like a husband and a wife or a, a father and their kids, you know. It's, it's a relationship that continuously is evolving and growing and is predicated on trust and transparency. Have you got any feedback from those uh, community partners on wanting, wanting more resources, more information on other topics? Uh, of course, we get it all the time, you know. Uh, we hear it. Yes, you know, we understand that you're engaged in prostate cancer research or cancer research in general, um, but what, what information do you have for us related to diabetes management, self-management, that is? What information do you have related to hypertension and how one must change their diet um, after, you know, learning that they're hypertensive? Uh, what about, what information do you have for heart disease? We hear that, you know, it's the number one killer, you know, and so we get all this information. They see the commercials, they see their um, clients or constituents or their neighbors or their church members coming down with different health ailments. They want more information. Like right now when I go into the community, the biggest thing I hear is, guess what? What is it? Alzheimer's. Dementia. How do I prevent it? Because it's on the rise now especially among minority populations, yeah. especially African-Americans. How do I prevent dementia? How do I prevent Alzheimer's? How do you see, how do you see uh, with technology changing so fast? How have you implemented that in, the, in this field? Oftentimes, you know, the, um, the health field is the laggards, or at least on the prevention side, we appear to be the laggards because, you know, in the operating room, they have the latest um, techniques and gadgets to uh, remove the cancer and to really deliver excellent health care. Um, but I don't think we fully actualize the role of technology as it relates to prevention, care coordination, enhancing patient-provider communication, delivering excellent models of health literacy. I don't think we fully explore that um, to the degree that other aspects of society has. Like when's the last time we've been in a gas station? All right, you just go pull up to the pump, pay at the pump, You're yeah. on your merry way. You go in the grocery store, you can do self-checkout. You get points on your phone for yeah, yeah, going right. to the, Ex all those kind of... <laughs> exactly. They know how you buy, where right. where. I mean... Check in into a restaurant. I remember the last time I went into a bank, right? <laughs> That's when I went into a bank. They escorted me out of the bank and showed me how to do a deposit at the ATM. Because they would much rather me utilize ATM than coming in 
um, you know, yeah. <laughs> interfacing with their tellers. And so we see all segments of society really taking advantage of the role of technology. We have to better understand how technology can enhance what we do. It was not going to replace us, but it could be used as a tool and an invaluable resource toward um, uh, helping us enhance health outcomes and eliminating disparities. Well, also, changing just a little bit at the topic, when is the Super Bowl coming to, to you guys, to Atlanta? <laughs> February 2019. 2019. Yes. Whoa. So it's, yes. it's the next one. It's next one. The next one will be in Atlanta. So right around the corner from Morehouse School what, of Medicine. Morehouse, what kind of partnership do you guys have in with the with the NFL? Yeah. So we have a lot of cross-cutting partnerships. We're working with the uh, um, NFL, uh, former Players Association. Um, there's an um, AUC committee that has been formed um, that is comprised of Spelman College, Morehouse College, Clark Atlanta University and Morehouse School of Medicine. Um, there's a lot of great things going on on the west side. That's where all those institutions are located. Okay. And it's also west to the Mercedes-Benz Stadium where the Super Bowl will be played. And, and, and so we, we really want to take this opportunity to highlight the richness of the West End community, what they have to offer, the value, the historical aspects of it, but then also to show forth where that community is headed and how it's changing for the better, and how the, um, the agents of those change are the academic institutions, in part with the community members and politicians and everyone else. And so we're inviting all individuals to the table. We have a um, great campaign that we're putting in place. Uh, we have a health and wellness committee um, and, and several other committees other initiatives. Um, that are um, you know, headed um, towards um, bringing the Super Bowl into um, the city of Atlanta. We're, we're very excited, and it will be even better if the Falcons are in the Super Bowl. Are you a Falcons fan? I am a Falcons fan. You think they have a chance to make it? I hope so. Vikings were close. Vikings we're, are close. We're, we're Philadelphia is looking very strong. Yeah. Uh, who knows? And who knows with New England? Who knows what they're going to do with yeah. Brady, who still hasn't retired? I know. But has he confirmed? I don't he think so, go. but I think he's 40 so now, he's right? Isn't he around 40, 41? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and I think Peyton Manning was around the same yeah. age when he decided to retire as well. Yeah. So hey, when you know when you love what you do, they say you never work a day in your life. That's true, Doctor. Thank you so much for uh, agreed to come and do this talk with us here at the community board. Um, where can people reach out to you? Should we? We're going to be sharing the information sure. from Morehouse. Yes. To for individuals who want to connect with you. Definitely. Um, via email. So, via fine. email. That's yeah, fine. And oh. my phone, office number is listed on there as well. Okay. That's another way to reach out to me. I'm always accessible. Um, and so... And there is a lot of information of your uh, publications and papers that you've been working on projects. So thank you again for agreeing to stop by and... Uh, to make it to Minnesota, finally. Yeah, finally. This was fun, and now I see why it was and so an tough ex- to come up here, because yeah, this be- is a great place. <laughs> be- expert, expert now, too, on how to sleep on a on an airplane, <laughs> all right? And in the airport on a yeah, chair. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I never slept so many times upright before, but that was great. Right. And just remember, uh, yesterday's um, research is today's medicine. Thank you, and, and encourage everybody to participate and research when you have opportunity and ask questions. That's the best part. You're exactly right. Because that's what research is about, asking questions. questions. Ask a question. And I want to invite everybody to follow us on Facebook on their community board. Also on Twitter, find us on their community board. On, on iTunes, on their community board podcast. On, and SoundCloud, also on their, 
on their community board. Doctor, let's go get you on your plane. All right. All right. Thanks a lot. All I right. enjoyed it. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Good day, everyone. What's going on this weekend? The last time we met, we talked to this. Well, last time I talked to the people from downtown. What was the last movie you went to? Miguel, what's new? Miguel, what's new in the community? Have you gotten any feedback about the Twitter feed? First of all, for the people who contact us on Twitter. About a certain research. Can you tell me more? Well, depends who you talk if you talk to the people from the board. Why did the yogurt go to the art museum? Did you see in the news? To get more culture.